0: Good evening and welcome to the Octoberween spooptacular installment of the Weird Sisters Podcast. I'm your ghoulish host Manning and I can't keep doing this voice. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me is Liz.
1: Greetings.
0: Danny was not able to make it to the session, but hopefully we'll be able to send us some audio clips that we will incorporate seamlessly into the final edit.
1: That's the goal.
0: I'm sure it'll all work fine. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Manning from the future here. Uh, the plan did not work out. Hopefully, Danny will be in next episode. So, how you been?
1: Good. I'm really glad you did the, like, intro line, because looking at the notes, I definitely read the Octoberween spooptacular as (laughs) oopterween. And then then I, like, looked at it and was like, what is (laughs) oopterween?
0: Our book this month is The Demonic Tale of Faust. Eric. Any first thoughts before we dive in?
1: I feel like I should state as a disclaimer that I have never read Faust, but I did read the Wikipedia article in preparation for the podcast, so that's my background on it.
0: With that, let us inscribe a circle of runes to summon the secret extra sister for the trivia section.
1: Published in August 1990, Eric is the ninth Discworld book and the fourth in the Redsmith subseries. As indicated by the full title, the word Faust crossed out and replaced with Eric, it parodies the concept of selling your soul to the devil, with additional references to the Inferno book of Dante's Divine Comedy, Greek myths about the underworld, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and a brief allusion to the Lost World literary genre. Eric has been published in four languages across its various editions. The list of its publications includes The Illustrated Eric from 2010, which features additional artwork from Josh Kirby, legendary fantasy artist whose work includes the covers for many of the Discworld books. This book was also part of the 2011 Galanx 50th Anniversary Fantasy Collection, which celebrates some of the publishing company's most beloved works such as Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and The Name of the Wind. In 2013, BBC Radio 4 broadcast an audio version as adapted by Robin Brooks and directed by John Quill Panting. Mark Heap, who starred in that production as Rincewind, played Aziraphale in the 2014 radio adaptation of Good Omens.
0: We begin following the events of sorcery with the inept wizard Rincewind trapped in the dungeon dimensions. Against all odds, Rincewind is snatched back to the disc by the demonologist Eric Thursley, who is nearly 14 years old.
1: As somebody who works in a school... I think Eric is very typical of any 14-year-old, which means that it's a little exasperating sometimes.
0: As much as Eric is an insufferable brat at the start, Mm -hmm. I'm basically willing to chalk that up to him being 13. Yeah. Who among us can say that they wouldn't smack a version of ourselves at that age? Mm Mm-hmm. But I've got some deeper problems that I'll want to discuss at the end.
1: Yeah, I... Can definitely have an idea of where what those will be.
0: Believing Rincewind to be a demon, Eric demands that the wizard grant him three wishes. One, to be ruler of the world, two, to meet the most beautiful woman in history, and three, to live forever. Being utterly incapable of even basic magic, Rincewind doesn't believe this is going to happen. But, with a snap of his fingers, Rincewind seems to grant Eric's first wish. Meanwhile, in Pandemonium, the capital city of Hell, the demon king Astvigal is furious. He had handpicked the ideal demon for Eric to summon, the duke Vasenigo, and now somebody with too many vowels in his name has swooped in to mess it all up.
1: How'd you say it?
0: Astvigal. It's the sound you make when you get your sexual organs trapped in something. <laughs>
1: Astvigal! Okay. Key smash of a name. He... I think I found him to be a more comedic character than maybe who's necessarily intended to be sometimes. And I think I want to save my vision for him until we get to the uh, casting call section. But it's like, it feels pretty brilliant in my mind, at least. The Deuce of Vasenego, He feels like a very important character in the book, like in a broad sense. But I think he's only in it like a couple times.
0: Basically just at the end.
1: Yeah, like, he's mentioned the beginning, and then there's the scene at the end, which we'll get to, but... And I, like, didn't realize that he was going to be, like, any really sort of character in the book other than just, like, oh, yeah, you know, that guy, and that's it.
0: Something to note, this book came out about three months after Good Omens, so clearly Terry Pratchett had hell on his mind a lot. King Astragal is basically an alternate version of Crowley, One who never went native living among humans, but instead worked his way down the corporate ladder. It's a neat idea and a solid demonstration of the fact that Gromans was way better with Crowley as a disrespected field operative. Mm -hmm. So, Eric's first wish was to be ruler of the world. In granting this, Rincewind brings them to the rainforests of Clatch, where they are welcomed by the Tezumen Empire. We haven't really talked about Clatch or any of the geography of the Discworld in depth, because for the most part, it's vague and not really necessary. Basically, Clatch exists to be the foreign lands to the more England-esque continent where Ankh-Morpork sits. While the Tasman Empire has a Mesoamerican aesthetic, there's also elements of Africa and Central Asia to Clatch. It's basically just somewhere else.
1: Yeah, and in Guards, Guards, they reference for, they say, what is it, forgive my Clatchian? They say it multiple times, and they reference it like Clatch is both a place that's like similar to Mexico and similar to France. So it's just basically a catch-all for anywhere else.
0: Since Eric is now the ruler of the world, that means he gets blamed for all the world's problems. And the Tezumen are going to state their grievances via a sternly worded sacrifice. Specifically a human sacrifice of Eric. Ridswind, and the explorer, Ponce de Querm. Pretty explicitly a parody of Juan Ponce de Leon, notable Spanish explorer who was on the same mission as Ponce de Querm to find the fountain of youth. We were just talking about Clatch, and now's a good chance to talk about Querm, which is basically the stand-in for continental Europe. A combination of France, Italy, Spain, here, basically just anywhere that's a little bit less foreign than Clatch. But still, Mm. four. Yeah. It is mentioned that the Tezumen are acting in accordance with the principles of their god, Quez Overcoatl. King Asfagal recognizes the name as a lower-ranking demon and reprimands that demon for acting without orders and depriving hell of the Tezuman Empire's true potential for evil influence. Quez Overcoatl materializes during the sacrificial ceremony to get the Tezumen to spare the humans. This is largely a success, primarily because Quetzovercoatl gets interrupted by the luggage arriving in its unstoppable pursuit of Rincewind and trampling the demon to oblivion.
1: There's a scene where, I think it's just Rincewind and Ponce de Quir, where they're standing in front of this massive and magnificent and terrifying statue of Quetzovercoatl, and then Quetzovercoatl is only actually, like, a foot tall.
0: <laughs> so... With the theology of the Tezumen radically adjusted, and as Ponce de Querm returns to his mission to find the Fountain of Youth, Eric's thoughts turn back to his second wish, to meet the most beautiful woman in history. With another snap of Rincewind's fingers, they are transported back in time to the Tsortian War. There they meet Lavolius, the tired yet sensible strategist responsible for the famous wooden horse tactic, this being a reference back to pyramids and the whole thing of sort and Ephib there.
1: Yeah, and as somebody who's never really read like any Greek mythology and especially never read the Odyssey or the Iliad or any sort of thing, it was still very easy to identify what parts were referencing that in this section, which I can appreciate cuz it helps make me feel like I'm not so lost when this these kinds of things come up. Definitely. Any
0: good parody is able to be understood and enjoyed without being specifically familiar with the exact things it's referencing.
1: Yeah, for sure. It does help
0: that the Iliad and the Odyssey are like definitive works of the Western literary tradition. Yeah. And like so much stuff references them. Something that I forgot to bring up during the pyramids thing. I do appreciate that the Discworld version of the whole wooden horse gambit was that it was a distraction so that (laughs) the Phoebian army could sneak in round the back.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just, uh, that's a
0: solid gag.
1: Yeah, and isn't it, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but isn't it in this book, Eric and Rincewind appear inside the horse when they like pop into this world and then they climb out of the horse and that's their first greeting to this?
0: Yes, they do. There's later reference to some of the events of the Odyssey. Lavellias is a direct parody of Odysseus
1: for sure. And I do appreciate his character as kind of this like very sensible, but a little bit worn kind of character. And he feels very relatable as in he's like, I just don't want to keep fighting for ages and ages and ages. I just want to go home. Good luck with that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Which factors into the next scene. As Rincewind and Erika join Lavalius, as he takes a secret tunnel into the main citadel of sort, they meet Eleanor, whose legendary beauty has been diminished over 10 years mm-hmm. and giving birth to several children. It's a shame that Eleanor doesn't have much dialogue.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because I think she would have been a very interesting character, especially considering she was the most beautiful woman in the world, according to like the rumors. And... How maybe that affected her or how that affects her relationship with other people. And especially now that she's not just like some like lithe, pretty 20 something like Instagram model looking girl. Like she's a grown woman with a family.
0: In the previous section, it got buried a little bit. But this is as good a place as any to talk about. The point of these scenes is to demonstrate to Eric that his wishes are bad, basically. Infantile. Yeah. And part of that is that he's has this idea in his mind of what a beautiful woman looks like. And a 13-year-old kid doesn't actually know.
1: No. And especially with something like beauty that is so subjective, and especially subjective throughout time.
0: Absolutely. But also just like a 13-year-old boy doesn't actually want to have sex, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Yeah. He wants the idea of, like, the status and to fit in, and that Mm -hmm. achievement would
1: provide. It's really about the fantasy of it, and this section is about peeling back the layers on that fantasy to a little bit of reality.
0: It sort of starts going in that direction, but doesn't really follow through. Yeah. And that's, I think, frustrating. I also wish that, like, Rinswin's, like, speculation about what Eleanor has been dealing with, like, I wish that she had just said that.
1: Yeah, especially because there's, she's like the closest thing we get to a female character and she's in one scene. Yep. And has like two lines of dialogue, maybe?
0: <sighs> yep. So, Lavaliolus, having figured out that Rincewind is from the future, asks if he, Lavalelius, gets home okay. Rincewind, worried about altering history, makes the factually correct statement that there are legends about Lubulius arriving home, which the strategist does not think to question. So, now it's time for Eric's third wish, to live forever. With another snap of Rinswin's fingers, they are transported to before the beginning of time and meet the creator of their universe, a daughtering old man who complains incessantly about the state of the universe-making business. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Gotta say, this is probably my favorite scene.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It feels very much like somebody you meet who's like really into making like models of something. They care so much about the like tiny itsy bitsy details that when you look at it from afar, it's like not really much of anything.
0: I was thinking like a model train set where it's like, it is very impressive, but you just sort of go like,
1: neat. Yeah.
0: Vaguely disappointing to them that you don't get it.
1: At least the creator gets a real kick out of designing snowflakes and such.
0: Uh, I didn't include the creator in the casting call section, because there are only two real options for this character. Option one, someone who can do a spot-on Terry Pratchett impression. Option two, Neil Gaiman.
1: Yeah, I think that's appropriate (laughs) in either case.
0: As the creator leaves to get started on the next universe, Rincewind and Eric realize the implications of Eric's third wish. Living forever means that Eric has to survive the entire lifespan of the universe, starting at the very beginning. Which is a neat twist on the whole, like, cursed immortality angle.
1: Yeah, for sure. It very much feels like wishing on a genie lamp. It's like, your wording is very important, it turns out.
0: But, like, it's also explicitly the way that wishes work on Discworld. Whoever's granting them has to make certain that the person gets exactly what they asked for, and exactly what they did not want.
1: Which also really works for this whole idea of Eric realizing that the things he wants are not things he really should want.
0: Rather than wait thousands of years for the first civilizations to form, Rincewind comes up with a plan. If Eric remakes the summoning circle to work in reverse, then they can use that to unsummon themselves to someplace else. Unfortunately, it sends the two of them to hell. So, you know, mixed success. Yeah. With this, we see the full extent of King Astvigal's malicious ingenuity. Since souls are separate from the body, those damned to hell don't actually have to feel any physical torture that the demons provide. Instead, Asville learning from the humans, has fitted hell with the most exquisite psychological torture imaginable. A two-star hotel and business conference!
1: <laughs> I need big, like, stadium lights waving in the air. I don't know, maybe some subpar fireworks.
0: Among the souls damned to this tedium are the still cheerful Ponce de Querm, and the less-than-thrilled Lavolius. Soon it is revealed that Rincewind's apparent demonic powers have in fact been the work of Duke Vassanigo, the one that the king stationed to tempt Eric. He has been using the wizard as a distraction while he gathered support among the other demon lords to overthrow King Asfkel. As Vasenigo enacts his plan, Rincewind and Eric are permitted to escape the confines of hell and return to the disc. The demon lords promote the king to the role of supreme life president of hell, with his own luxury office filled to bursting with organizational materials, actuarial tables, business memorabilia, and no actual way to communicate with the rest of hell. It's a very Twilight Zone ending when you think about it.
1: Yeah, it's... I thought it was like, it was one of the later lines in the book. It says that really in the end, everybody was kind of left better after this, even the king, even though he's basically been condemned to his own little personal bubble in hell.
0: And that's the end of Eric. So what did you think of the story as a whole?
1: It felt so like short. And it's not a long book, but there have been other Discworld books that are probably pretty comparable in length. My copy of it's like, 195 pages or something. It's like nothing. But it felt, it was just felt like a sprint all the way through. Like I didn't realize how far I was through the book until I was like, oh, I have like 25 pages left. And I think we're at the climax now.
0: Word count, just under 31K.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's like nothing. Yeah, I mean, even average novels usually are somewhere around like 70, 75,000. So this is an itty bitty baby book.
0: If this book was any thinner, you could use it to slice cheese.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you enjoy it?
1: I, I, like I did. It was fun, but it wasn't, I don't think like anything super impactful like a lot of the other books have been. And I don't think it touches on some of the like deeper ideas or maybe more interesting concepts like some of the other books do. What are your feelings on it? Well, you know I
0: love the Discworld series and it breaks my heart to be negative, but honestly this feels like a rough draft. Mm-hmm. Couple things. The first thing I want to bring up is the blurb on the back cover which describes Eric the character as a demonology hacker. Now to me that implies a way more interesting story where demons are technology, sort of like the imp in Two Flowers Camera.
1: Yeah, that was a really cool idea. Oh, I feel like we were cheated out of something here.
0: I'd expect a running gag about demons getting more powerful when they interlock their goat horns because something something ram. (laughs) But aside from Eric's book, Maleficarum Sumpta Diabolicite Ocularis Singularum, aka MS-DOS, like there's barely anything technology wise.
1: Yeah, I didn't put that together about the book's name.
0: That's a subtle one.
1: Yeah, it feels like the base level was laid for something along the lines of demons being akin to technology, which would have been a really funny idea, I think, in Pratchett's hands. And that's, like, it. Those references are what that idea is in this.
0: Maybe it just didn't fit in the structure and, like, world of Discworld, but I was imagining a bit more cyberpunk, almost? Like, maybe a huge corporate entity Mm -hmm. that is using demons as advanced software
1: just didn't quite make it into this one
0: (laughs) my second gripe is that the book even as it is just fizzles out at the end yeah like structurally it feels a little weak if you'll indulge me were i the editor my notes would be i think we're missing two important scenes one at the climax where erica is tempted with the ideal versions of his original wishes but refuses them in favor of protecting Rincewind and the others. And then another scene at the very end where we see how much Eric has grown as a person and how he'll take these lessons through to the rest of his life. That's the natural curve of the story arc to me. Mm -hmm. A coming-of-age tale about giving up the fantasy of getting everything you want for free and instead learning to be mindful of others and willing to put in the work.
1: Yeah, because especially, like, I'm to some degree, okay in comedies if characters don't have like a terribly like defined and excellent character arc because that's not always necessarily the point of comedies. But it definitely feels like it was an easy thing to do in this because like even with that scene with Laviolis and Rincewind when he's asking him if he's going to get a home okay, that could have been a really like poignant scene about how... Sometimes you have to do things that maybe you don't necessarily want to do because there are bigger consequences if you don't.
0: And also, like, the scene with President Asfagal being imprisoned, like, that was the correct scene to end on, but it was the end of the subplot. The actual plot just doesn't conclude.
1: Yeah, and I definitely think there are like moments where we can see where Rincewind is kind of supposed to be a mentor for Eric, like somebody Eric can really look up to. And especially because Eric's family is not really mentioned, though. The fact that he's gotten all of his like demonology stuff from his granddad kind of maybe makes me think that he probably doesn't have siblings and his parents might not have been around a lot. So he kind of had to keep himself entertained with the stuff he found in their attic, Well,
0: of all the words of Mice and Men, the cruelest are it might have been. Ending on more of a high note, I really appreciate one throwaway line the king has about wars killing innocent people before hell has a chance to corrupt them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I thought that was a neat way to give the demon king a sense of perspective.
1: Yeah, because I think it's really easy to make like any kind of demon character just, oh, they're just the end all be all of evil and that's all they are. But evil can be kind of a subjective thing. (laughs) Was there anything else you
0: wanted to go over?
1: Not a big fan of the parrot in the book, I guess.
0: I'm glad that the parrot dropped out about halfway through.
1: Yeah, which he really seemed like he was going to be way more important and then he just kind of disappears. So
0: we're almost at the end, which means it's time for the casting call. Each month, I reach out to the fans through our social media and ask them to suggest actors we would cast in a hypothetical adaptation of this story. And my co-hosts pick out their favorites.
1: We have, like, a fairly concise cast. Like, there are a lot of people who pop in and out, but, like, Eleanor, they don't get a lot of, like, screen time, per se. So who is your pick to play Eric? I'm probably gonna butcher this name a little bit, but I think I have to pick Gaetano Maserato. He's the curly-haired kid from Stranger Things. I feel like he just has a very charming personality that might help offset some of the early unpleasantness of Eric. So for Aspagal, I think I have to go with Mark Shepard. I don't really know anything he's been in. He was Crowley in Supernatural. Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: It's basically just him doing Crowley again.
1: Okay, Yeah. Cool. I'm all right with that because (laughs) my idea of him is like a stereotypical kind of like devil costume. I want him to just be wearing like a red bodysuit with like a little like headband with horns on it and carrying like a plastic pitchfork. (laughs) Because it just made like every scene he's in much funnier if he's surrounded by like actual demons and he's just like a dude.
0: Who's your pick for Ponce de Querm?
1: I think I have to go with Fernando Rey just because he's got the like old school kind of like Spanish explorer kind of look that I was picturing in my head. And finally for Laviolos. This one's a hard one too. And I think I have to go with Orlando Jones just because I think he has a very kind of exasperated presence in American gods, which is like a big thing that he's in at the moment. Um, And I think that would lend itself very well to this.
0: All right, before we bring this episode to a close, I want to take advantage of this small platform to talk about Desert Bus for Hope, a charity fundraiser that will be starting up November 8th and going for about a week. I encourage all of you listening to visit DesertBus.org because it's a good cause, raising money for children's hospitals awesome i know for a fact that our listeners will enjoy some of the things that are offered there while you're looking up stuff i encourage you all to come join the weird sisters podcast discord server where you can chat about this episode the discord books and anything else with a bunch of cool people the server is linked on the youtube description on our twitter at weird sisters pod and theoretically wherever you're finding this episode should have a link in the description Sending out a big thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music, to my co-hosts for their thoughts and words, and to you for listening. Check your local library for the next book in the series, Moving Pictures. Liz, hit me with that favorite footnote.
1: Demons in their hell are quite different from the dungeon dimensions, those endless parallel wastelands outside of space and time. The sad, mad things in the dungeon dimensions have no understanding of the world, but simply crave light and shape and try to warm themselves by the fires of reality, clustering around it to the same effect, if they ever broke through, as an ocean trying to warm itself around a candle. Whereas demons belong to the same space-time wuss' name, more or less, as humans, and have a deep and abiding interest in humanity's day-to-day affair. Interestingly enough, the gods of the disk have never bothered much about judging the souls of the dead. And so people only go to hell if that's where they believe, in their deepest heart, that they deserve to go. Which they won't do if they don't know about it. This explains why it is so important to shoot missionaries on sight. So,
0: happy Octoberween, everyone! Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves!